0: Lord Jesus, we come before you um, to study about who you are. We come to study your word. We come to study and to be revealed uh, for, for your life and for your message of your life to be revealed to us. We ask the Holy Spirit to illumine the scriptures to us so that we can better understand, better apply God's word to our heart. As the psalmist wrote, May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Today's message is titled, Jesus Rejected and Yet Resolute. So our passage is this, that Jesus went to his hometown, he went to Nazareth, and the people of Nazareth rejected him. But we will see in the next section, right after this, that being rejected does not deter Jesus from continuing in ministry and doing the work that God has called him to do. As you recall from last week and the week before, Jesus has been doing incredible miracles. Last week, a woman who had suffered from a blood, an issue of blood for 12 years came and barely touched the hems of his garment and she was healed. Immediately after that, Jesus goes to the Jairus' house and he raises a girl from the dead. When he leaves there, he heals two blind men. And it says right after that, a demon-possessed man was brought to him and he cast the demon out of that man. And so after all of these incredible miracles, this exhausting day, no doubt for Jesus all the wonders that he had done, he gets back on the boat and he goes to a familiar place. He goes back to Nazareth where one would think he would be welcomed. But we see here that he was rejected. And rejection for Jesus is not something new. Jesus is familiar with rejection. If you recall from previous weeks, the Pharisees, right, the religious leaders had already rejected him. His mother and brothers come to the house where he was at. They thought he was crazy. They rejected him. And so here he is back on his home turf amongst friends and family that have seen him grow up, and again, he is rejected. After healing the crazy man that had that legion of demons, like thousands of demons in him, they did the same. The people had seen this incredible miracle that only God can do, and remember, they were afraid, and they begged Jesus to leave their vicinity, to leave their area. So Jesus was constantly, consistently being rejected by people, regardless of his preaching and teaching, regardless of his miracles, this was often the response to Jesus, and so his hometown friends and family take offense at him, and his teaching. And it's just incredible to me that this passage in Mark, uh, Matthew 13, follows what we saw last week in uh, in Matthew 9. Quite possibly, raising a dead girl to life was the most miraculous, incredible thing that Jesus did prior to his death and resurrection. Look at what Jesus has been doing through these miracles. Look at what he's been teaching his disciples and therefore through the word of God, what he has been teaching us. He healed blind men. He has power over sickness. He cast out demons. He has power over the spirit world. There was a severe storm. Remember, he was asleep in the boat. A severe storm such that these experienced fishermen thought they were going to die. And he gets up and, in a word, calms the storm. Jesus has power over nature itself. But this, this is even more incredible. Because storms die down, people can be healed, but death is final, death is the end. You can't fix death. And yet Jesus steps into that room and says, little girl, I speak to you, arise. And the girl raises from the dead. So leaving that place, they go to Nazareth, and I'm sure the disciples thought, this is it. What else can this man do? People are going to be flocking to him to follow him. And they are received with rejection and disappointment dishonor it says uh, when jesus arrives there in nazareth what does he do let's look back at verses 53 and 54 he went away from there and coming to his hometown he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and they said where did this man get this wisdom and get these mighty works what do we see jesus doing he's teaching at the synagogue no doubt the synagogue that he grew up attending We've seen Jesus teaching in the synagogues in Capernaum. We've seen him gathering great crowds of people on mountainsides to to preach or at the, the edge of the sea. So many people, remember, the multitudes that he had to get into a boat in order to preach to them. So this is very common for Jesus to do. And yet they rejected him. They were astonished. They were amazed. They were astonished at what was being taught. They were astonished at what he was able to do, and they were astonished at who was doing it, right? Where did he get this wisdom? Where did he get his power? Not only were they astonished, the people of Nazareth was confused. For the first 30 years of Jesus' life, he wasn't preaching and doing miracles. He was, what does it say, a carpenter. That was his trade. That was his job. They knew his father and mother. They knew his brothers. His sisters were there in, in town as well. Jesus was a carpenter. And so the people of Nazareth are thinking, this guy's no different than us. How all of a sudden is he doing these incredible works? Verse 57 says, they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. They took offense at Jesus. They were offended by Jesus. I mean, can you imagine? The people of Nazareth thought Jesus was scandalous. But you know what? The people of Nazareth were offended by Jesus 2,000 years ago for the same reason that people are offended by Jesus today. Because he calls people to repentance. Typically, people like the healing Jesus and they like the loving Jesus. And they want to cut out the parts of scripture where Jesus says, no, you need to repent of your sin. You're going your own way and that is not acceptable. You need to repent and you need to follow me. And so people today are offended by the the message of Christ, just as people 2000 years ago were offended by the message of the gospel that Christ brought, this message of repentance. Because our sinful hearts say, don't tell me I'm a sinner. Don't tell me I'm wrong. Don't tell me that I have to obey. And yet that's what the gospel says. The gospel says that in our flesh, we are broken, weak vessels, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And the gospel says, but the solution has been given to you. You just have to admit that you are a sinner. But they took offense at Jesus and they rejected him. I imagine more than the rejection of the Pharisees, this rejection probably hit Jesus a little bit more uh, close to home. These are people he knew. These are people who knew him and they rejected him as the Messiah. Let's look at the last verse there of chapter 13. Verse 58 says, and Jesus did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Now, this can be maybe a confusing verse. It sounds like Jesus was limited in what he could do because the people didn't have faith. But is that consistent with Scripture? That Christ is limited? That Christ is insufficient to do what Christ wants to do? No. We're told in the epistles that Jesus was in the very nature God. The Bible says that all the fullness of deity lives bodily in Christ. Remember, Jesus calmed the storm in spite of the disciples' lack of faith. And he says, don't you have enough faith? So it's not because of a lack of faith that he was, he, that he couldn't do these miracles in Nazareth. Jesus is not limited by lack of faith or wavering faith. Jesus is all-powerful. Nothing can stand against him. So this is a good place to just put a pin in and say, okay, so what was the purpose in that time when Jesus was alive on earth? What was the purpose of these miracles? What was the purpose of the healings? They were used by Christ and then the apostles after Christ we see a little bit there in the book of acts they were used to validate the gospel's message that was the purpose of the of the miracles they were used to validate or to give evidence or proof of what Jesus was teaching and that Jesus was who he said he would be so most of the people in Nazareth had already determined they were going to reject Christ they could not believe this man Jesus Was the Messiah. And so the miracles and the healings, they were not going to change their minds. As I read this, I think about that passage where it says, Don't cast your pearls before swine. Jesus wasn't going to do things, miracles, and supernatural works there, because he knew that it was not going to make a difference to turn these people from those who lacked faith to those who were disciples of Christ. In Jesus' hometown of Nazareth, only a few people had faith to believe the gospel. As I said, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they're all different accounts of Christ's life. And so, actually, the gospel of Mark has the same passage, but it adds an extra verse at the very end. It's in, Ma- it's in Mark 6, 6. And it says, Jesus was amazed at their unbelief. He couldn't believe it. Now, this whole passage starts with the people of Nazareth were amazed and astonished at Christ. The fact that he can do these things, the fact that he was teaching these things. And the passage ends with Jesus just being flabbergasted, amazed that they could lack such faith. I can imagine Jesus saying, what else do I need to do to prove to you that I am who I say I am? What other miracles are necessary for you to believe that I am the long-awaited, the promised Messiah, that I am the Son of God. What else do you need? For goodness sakes, he had just raised a girl from the dead. Again, if we jump over to the epistles, that's still a problem, Paul says, that the Jews were looking for miraculous signs, and they were never enough. Church, are you aware that after this incident here in Matthew 13 or uh, in Mark 6, when Jesus leaves Nazareth at this moment, at this time, as far as we know, according to the Gospels, He never goes back to Nazareth on his, in His earthly life. It's as if He wipes the dust off of His feet and leaves them in their unbelief and in their rejection. After overwhelming evidence, they continued to reject him. He was rejected. He was dishonored. He was disrespected. What does he do immediately following this? Now we're going to have to jump to a couple of chapters back. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 9, because this will tell us what happens chronologically right after this event. So Matthew chapter 9. Verse 35, what happens after Jesus is rejected um, by his hometown of Nazareth, Nazareth? Matthew nine thirty-five. it says, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. So after being his, uh, rejected by his hometown, Jesus goes out and continues to minister to other people. He may have been discouraged, but he did not allow it to derail him or to deter him in ministry. Even though Jesus was rejected by the people who knew him most, he remained resolute in his work for the Lord. Church, just think about it too, because in all these years that we're given with Jesus and the gospel, everything he's doing is preparing his disciples after him. So they are seeing Jesus being rejected and yet continuing on. No doubt, as we see then through the book of Acts and the epistles, the apostles themselves being rejected, being dishonored, being persecuted. And what do we see them do? Same thing the Lord did, which was continue on in faithful ministry to the Lord. In this passage or in this verse, I see four things that Jesus was resolute to do. Number one, Jesus was resolute to go to the lost. It says that Jesus went throughout all the cities and the villages. So in spite of the uh, rejection from the Pharisees, in spite of the rejection from his hometown, he continues to go meet new people. He continues to go to the lost. Jesus tells us in Luke 19.10 that he, the Son of Man, has come to the earth in order to seek and to save the lost. That's what we see him doing. He's resolute to continue to go and seek the lost. He was obedient to leave that home base of Galilee there in, uh, mainly in Capernaum and to seek and save the lost in, to new places to reach new people. You know, at the be- here still relatively at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he's getting big crowds, right? Because people like the miracles. He's getting kind of famous. He's getting kind of well-known, and it would have been super easy for him to stay in that place and to reap all the rewards and the accolades and the applause of doing that thing. But he continues to go where he's been called to go. We're told there in Luke chapter 4, starting in verse uh, 42, because this is where He's actually, um, they, they come to him and they say, please stay, don't leave, don't leave. But he says to them in verse uh, Luke four forty three, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for this is the purpose for which I was sent. There were places where Jesus was popular and well-received and where huge crowds had gathered. And that would have been easier to just remain there. But he continued to go to the lost. He was resolute to continue to go to new places and to take the gospel to the lost. And church, that's the second point. He was resolute to go, but he was also, he was resolute to proclaim the gospel. That's what it says. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages. He was teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. As he went to all these places, as he went to the lost, he went with a message on his lips. He proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom. You know, and as believers, we can do a lot of good things. There's a lot of need around here in Thailand, right? We can feed the hungry and clothe the naked and care for the sick. We can and we should do all these good things in order to evidence and prove uh, the love of God. But if we don't go... uh, with the gospel, then we are not helping these people in eternity. Because their hunger, their poverty, their illness, their loneliness, that is not their greatest need. Their greatest need is salvation. And Christ knew that. He often told people as he was healing them, your faith has healed you. Right? Even as he healed, he knew their greatest need was salvation. So Jesus sought out lost people in order to preach the gospel to them. It was, the gospel was always core of Jesus' teaching because the gospel has eternal significance. You know, from the, in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, the very, very beginning of Jesus' ministry, it says, like, this is the message that Jesus comes, and he tells people, it says, repent and believe in the gospel. That was his message. Repent, turn away from your sin, and believe In the gospel. That was the message that people needed to hear when Jesus was on earth. That people needed to recognize that they were in sin and turn away from those things. They needed to realize that their sin had broken their relationship with God and they needed to turn back to Him. And they needed to know the gospel was their only means and their only hope for salvation. At that time, in in Judaism, the, the, the religion of the Jewish people, People had to work their way to God. They had to earn God's favor. They had to earn salvation. The same is true today in every religion except Christianity. In Buddhism, in Islam, people are having to work in order to earn salvation or to earn heaven. But that is not the gospel. Believing in the gospel is the only path that we can take for salvation. So repent and believe the gospel was Jesus' message to the people of his day and it's still the same message today. We need to repent from sin and we need to believe in the gospel. And if you don't know, if you're here and you don't know what the gospel message is, it is that God the creator has created each one of us for a relationship. We, with him, we are made to be in a relationship with the God who created this whole world. But our sin, the, the things that we have done that are wrong, has broken that relationship with our creator. And there is nothing that we can do, no good that we can do, no service, no charity that we can give, that will be able to restore that relationship with God. And so, God the Father sent his son to the earth in order to take our punishment for our sin so that we can be made right with him. Because a punishment for sin was needed in order to restore our relationship to the Father. And so Jesus went to the cross on our behalf. He took our punishment. He died our death. And then on the third day, Jesus conquered death. Amen? He conquered death. He rose again. He conquered sin. He conquered, um, the devil in his resurrection. And now, if the gospel says, if we believe in Christ, if we put our trust in him, that we don't get to earn salvation, but that we earn or we receive, I mean, we receive salvation because of and through faith in Christ, then we will be saved. That's the gospel. That is the proclamation that the lost world needs to hear today is what it's the proclamation that the lost world needs to hear from each one of us and if you are here today and you are not a christian and you this is new information to you talk to me afterwards because eternity heaven or hell hangs in the balance and i want to introduce you to the lord jesus christ church the gospel alone is sufficient to restore us into relationship with god Jesus was resolute to go to the lost. He was resolute to proclaim the gospel. And number three, he was resolute to bring a healing touch in the lives of broken people. In Matthew 9.35, it says Jesus was healing every disease and every affliction. So in addition to proclaiming the gospel and dealing with the biggest need that they have, the spiritual need that they have, Jesus was also Helping and healing the physical needs that they had. He opened the ears of the deaf. He gave sight to the blind. He brought back to life those who had died. He set those oppressed by demons free. And in the early stages of the church through the book of Acts, the first eight or so chapters, we see the apostles do some of these same things through the power of the Holy Spirit. But as you continue to read in the book of Acts and As you continue to read the rest of the New Testament in Romans and 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, we don't see that. Do we? Rarely do we see that. But church, we do see another kind of healing ministry as we walk through the remainder of the New Testament. We see Jesus' followers respond to the needs of the poor and the afflicted both those inside the church and outside the church. Consider Acts chapter 4, where people like Barnabas sold their home or property in order to provide for the the needy, the poor within the church. Or in Acts chapter 6, there was a planned ministry to provide food for widows. In Galatians 2.10, Paul writes, the only thing the apostles, Peter and John asked us to do was to remember the poor, which he said was the very thing I was eager to do. In 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, there is a concerted effort to collect money in order to provide for the poor. In Hebrews thirteen sixteen, it says, Do not neglect to do good and to share, for God is pleased with such sacrifices. In James one twenty seven, it says religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained by the world. And as we continue through the Gospels, we'll get to the, the Good Samaritan. Jesus holds up this Good Samaritan as someone to emulate, someone who cared for a man who was of a different religion, and a different ethnicity, but he cared for his needs physically and materially. So none of these examples have miraculous healing, but they do show us how we, as followers of Christ, can practically bring a healing touch to the lives of those who are hurting, or poor, or hungry, or lonely, mistreated, or ignored. Because church, our God is a God that is deeply concerned for those who are hurting. We live in a world that is hurting and we live in a world that is in pain and we live in a world that is wrecked and ruined by the fall because of sin. But church, it won't always be this way. God has a plan of restoration and redemption and renewal. Now until that day, let us be men and women who are willing to go and bring a healing touch into the lives of those who are hurting. And that leads me to the final thing I see from Christ in this passage. Christ was resolute to see lost people through the eyes of compassion. In verse 36, it says, When Jesus saw the crowds of people, he had compassion for them. They were harassed and helpless and they were like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus had compassion on the crowds of people. The multitudes of people. In every city and every village that he entered. He knew they were, that the lost people were harassed. And he knew that they were helpless. And he knew they were sheep without a shepherd. He saw that they were in need. He saw that they were wandering about. Lost in their sin. But he also saw... All the way their sin dishonored the Father. And he also knew all of their sin that would in a few years' time nail him to the cross. But instead of getting frustrated at the lost people, instead of getting angry because of their sin or because of their lostness, instead of judging them for their sin, Christ had mercy and compassion on those who were lost He had grace, and he had love toward them. So church, may we do the same. Jesus Christ experienced rejection from family and friends there in Nazareth. But in spite of that, we see Christ resolute to go to the lost. Resolute to proclaim the gospel. Resolute to bring a healing touch to the lives of broken people. And resolute to see lost people through eyes of compassion and we should do the same because the harvest is plentiful but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. The harvest is plentiful. Throughout the Gospels when it's talking about the harvest each time it is talking about lost people. So lost people are plentiful. Lost people are everywhere. They are all around us. They are in need of salvation. We all live in a country where one, maybe two percent of the people claim to follow Christ. In the gospel of John, verse 435, as lost people are coming to him, he tells the disciples, look up, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. So my challenge to each one of us, including myself, is when we are out and about, when we are um, in, the, in town at the moat, lift up your eyes and see that the harvest is all around us. If you're at the market, lift up your eyes and see that the harvest is all around us. The harvest is plentiful. Brother and sister, listen to me. God has orchestrated each one of us to be here in Chiang Mai during this season. Why? You may think you are here because of your kids' education or because your mission agency sent you here or because you got kicked out of another country. In truth, God has placed each one of us here in Chiang Mai because there are lost people here in Chiang Mai that need to hear the gospel from us. The harvest is plentiful. There are lost people everywhere. But scripture says, the laborers are few. There are too few believers willing to share the gospel, willing to be resolute to go, to proclaim, to heal, and to have compassion on those who are lost. The laborers are few. So that's a problem. Christ presents it as a problem. The laborers are few. But he also presents a solution, does he not? Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers out into the harvest. We see and we know that the vast majority of Thai people around us are going to spend an eternity in hell unless they come to saving faith in Christ. So church, let us be faithful to pray and to go, to proclaim, to help, to heal, and to have eyes of compassion to those who are apart from God. And as we go among lost people and as we share with lost people, we may be rejected. They may reject the gospel. They may decide they don't want to follow Christ. We may feel that they are rejecting us. And if so, then we join a long line of Christians following their Lord in the example that He has set for us. But church, let's be resolute to go And to proclaim the gospel to the lost. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you recognizing that we are limited. That we are weak. That we are... um, We have no good within us apart from Christ in us. The hope of glory. We recognize, Lord, that you have given us gifts. And it's you that is empowering us. And wants us to use the gifts that you have given us. For the building of your kingdom. So, Lord, I pray... For each one of us, that we would go out into the harvest, that we would we would follow after the example of Christ, and that we would take the gospel with us as we go, that we would proclaim to those who are lost. And Father, I pray for the harvest, Lord, that you would raise up and send out more workers, more laborers into the harvest field. Lord, from our home churches and our home countries, wherever they may be, Lord, raise up and send out more. Lord, from our church here, we don't know where each one of us will be in the next 12 months from now, but you do. So Lord, as you stir your church in Chiang Mai, Refuge Fellowship and the other congregations, Lord, as you stir your people here in Chiang Mai, we ask the Lord of the harvest to raise up and to send out workers into the harvest. Holy Spirit, we ask that you continue to lead us Continue to guide us, help us to keep in step with you. In your name we pray, amen.